Chapter 8, Part 1 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Freeholds, Not of Inheritance. Part 1. We are next to discourse of such estates of freehold as are not of inheritance, but for life only. And of these estates for life, some are conventional or expressly created by the act of the parties, others merely legal or created by construction and operation of law. We will consider them both in their order. 1. Estates for life, expressly created by deed or grant, which alone are properly conventional, are where a lease is made of lands or tenements to a man to hold for the term of his own life or for that of any other person or for more lives than one, in any of which cases he is styled tenant for life. Only when he holds the estate by the life of another, he is usually called tenant pur arte vie. These estates for life are, like inheritances, of a feudal nature, and were, for some time, the highest estate that any man could have in a feud, which, as we have before seen, was not in its original hereditary. They are given or conferred by the same feudal rights and solemnities, the same investiture or livery of fifen as fees themselves are, and they are held by fealty, if demanded, and such conventional rents and services as the lord or lessor and his tenant or lessee have agreed on. Estates for life may be created not only by the express words before mentioned, but also by a general grant without defining or limiting any specific estate. As if one grants to A, B, the manor of Dale, this makes him a tenant for life. For though... As there are no words of inheritance or heirs mentioned in the grant, it cannot be construed to be a fee. It shall, however, be construed to be as large an estate as the words of the donation will bear, and therefore be an estate for life. Also, such a grant at large, or a grant for a term of life generally, shall be construed to be as an estate for the life of the grantee in case the grantor hath authority to make such a grant, for an estate for a man's own life is more beneficial and of higher nature than for any other life. And the rule of law is that all grants are to be taken most strongly against the grantor unless in the case of the king. Such estates for life will, generally speaking, endure as long as the life for which they are granted. But there are some estates for life which may determine upon future contingencies before the life for which they are created expires. As, if an estate be granted to a woman during her widowhood, or to a man until he be promoted to a benefice, in these and similar cases, whenever the contingency happens, when the widow marries, or when the grantee obtains a benefice, the respective estates are absolutely determined and gone. Yet, while they subsist, they are reckoned estates for life, 
because the time for which they will endure being uncertain, they may possibly last for life if the contingencies upon which they are to determine do not sooner happen. And, moreover, in case an estate be granted to a man for his life, generally it may also determine by his civil death, as if he enters into a monastery whereby he is dead in law. For which reason in conveyances the grant is usually made for the term of a man's natural life, which can only be determined by his natural death. The incidents to an estate for life are principally the following, which are applicable not only to that species of tenants for life which are expressly created by deed, but also to those which are created by an act and operation of law. 1. Every tenant for life, unless restrained by covenant or agreement, may of common right take upon the land demised to him reasonable estovers or boats. For he hath a right to the full enjoyment and use of the land and all its profits during his estate therein. But he is not permitted to cut down timber or do other waste upon the premises for the destruction of such things as are not the temporary profits of the tenement is not necessary for the tenant's complete enjoyment of his estate, but tends to the permanent and lasting loss of the person entitled to the inheritance. 2. Tenant for life or his representatives shall not be prejudiced by any sudden determination of his estate because such determination is contingent and uncertain. Therefore, if a tenant for his own life sows the lands and dies before the harvest, his executor shall have the emblems or profits of the crop. For the estate was determined by the act of God, and its maxim in law, Actis de nemini facet injurium. The representatives, therefore, of the tenant for life shall have the emblems to compensate for the labor and expense of tilling, manuring, and sowing the lands, and also for the encouragement of husbandry, which being a public benefit, tending to the increase and plenty of provisions, ought to have the utmost security and privilege that the law can give it. Wherefore, by the feudal law, if a tenant for life died between the beginning of September and the end of February, the Lord, who was entitled to the reversion, was also entitled to the profits of the whole year. But if he died between the beginning of March and the end of August, the heirs of the tenant received the whole. From hence our law of emblems seems to have been derived, but with very considerable improvements. So it is also, if a man be tenant for the life of another, and chestuicuvie, or he on whose life the land is held, dies after the corn sown, the tenant, pur artervi, shall have the emblems. The same is also the rule if the estate be determined by an act of law. Therefore, if a leaf be made to husband and wife during coverture, which gives them a determinable estate for life, and the husband sows the land, and afterwards they are divorced, a vinculo matrimoni, the husband shall have the emblems in this case, for the sentence of divorce is the act of law. But if an estate for life be determined by the tenant's own act, as by forfeiture for waste committed, or if a tenant during widowhood thinks proper to marry, in these and similar cases the tenants, 
having thus determined the estate by their own acts, shall not be entitled to take the emblements. The doctrine of emblements extends not only to corn sown, but to roots planted or other annual artificial profit, but it is otherwise of fruit trees, grass, and the like, which are not planted annually at the expense and labor of the tenant, but are either the permanent or natural profit of the earth. For even when a man plants a tree, he cannot be presumed to plant it in contemplation of any present profit, but merely with a prospect of it being useful to future successions of tenants. The advantages also of emblements are particularly extended to the parochial clergy by the statute 28 Henry VIII C2. For all persons who are presented to any ecclesiastical benefice or to any civil office are considered as tenants for their own lives unless the contrary be expressed in the form of donation. 3. A third incident to estates for life relates to the under-tenants or lessees, for they have the same, nay greater indulgences than their lessors, the original tenants for life. The same, for the law of estovers and emblements with regard to a tenant for life, is also law with regard to his under-tenant, who represents him and stands in his place, and greater, for in those cases where a tenant for life shall not have the emblems, because the estate determines by his own act, the exception shall not reach his lessee, who is a third person. As in the case of a woman who holds durante viduitate, her taking a husband is her own act, and therefore deprives her of the emblems. But if she leaves her estate to an undertenant who sows the land, and she then marries, this, her act, shall not deprive the tenant of his emblems, who is a stranger and could not prevent her. The lessees of tenants for life had also at the common law another most unreasonable advantage. For at the death of their lessors, the tenants for life, these undertenants might, if they pleased, quit the premises and pay no rent to anybody for the occupation of the land since the last quarter day or other day assigned for payment of rent. To remedy which, it is now enacted that the executors or administrators of tenant for life, on whose death any lease determined, shall recover of the lessee a rateable proportion of rent from the last day of payment to the death of such lessor. 2. The next estate for life is of the legal kind, as contradistinguished from conventional, viz. that of a tenant in tail after possibility of issue extinct. This happens where one is a tenant in special tail, and a person from whose body the issue was to spring dies without issue, or, having left issue, that issue becomes extinct. In either of these cases, the surviving tenant in special tail becomes tenant in tail after possibility of issue extinct. As, where one has an estate to him and his heirs on the body of his present wife to be begotten, and the wife dies without issue, in this case the man has an estate tail which cannot possibly descend to anyone, and therefore the law makes use of this long periphrasis as absolutely necessary to give an adequate idea of his estate. 
or if it had called him barely tenant in fee tail special, that would not have distinguished him from others, and besides, he has no longer an estate of inheritance or fee, for he can have no heirs capable of taking performam doni. Had it called him tenant in tail without issue, this had only related to the present fact, and would not have excluded the possibility of future issue. Had he been styled tenant in tail without possibility of issue, this would exclude time past as well as present, and he might, under this description, never have had any possibility of issue. No definition, therefore, could so exactly mark him out as this of tenant and tail after possibility of issue extinct, which, with a precision peculiar to our own law, not only takes in the possibility of issue in tail which he once had, but also states that this possibility is now extinguished and gone. This estate must be created by the act of God, that is, by the death of that person out of whose body the issue was to spring. For no limitation, conveyance, or other human act can make it. For, if land be given to a man and his wife, and the heirs of their two bodies begotten, and they are divorced, a vinculo matrimoni, they shall neither of them have this estate, but be barely tenants for life, notwithstanding the inheritance once vested in them. Possibility of issue is always supposed to exist in law, unless extinguished by the death of the parties, even though the donies be each of them an hundred years old. This estate is of an amphibious nature, partaking partly of an estate tale and partly of an estate for life. The tenant is, in truth, only tenant for life, but with many of the privileges of a tenant in tale, as not to be punishable for waste, etc., or he is tenant in tail with many of the restrictions of a tenant for life, as to forfeit his estate if he aliens it in fee simple, whereas such alienation by tenant in tail, though voidable by the issue, is no forfeiture of the estate to the reversioner, who is not concerned in interest till all possibility of issue be extinct. But in general, the law looks upon this estate as equivalent to an estate for life only, and, as such, will permit this tenant to exchange his estate with a tenant for life, which exchange can only be made, as we shall see hereafter, of estates that are equal in their nature. 3. Tenants by the courtesy of England is where a man marries a woman seized of lands or tenements in fee simple or fee tail that is, of any estate of inheritance, and has by her issue born alive, which was capable of inheriting her estate. In this case, he shall, on the death of his wife, hold the lands for his life as tenant by the courtesy of England. This estate, according to Littleton, has its denomination because it is used within the realm of England only, and it is said in the mirror to have been introduced by King Henry I, but it appears also to have been the established law of Scotland, wherein it was called curialitas, so that probably our word courtesy was understood to signify rather an attendance upon the Lord's court or curtis, that is, 
being his vassal or tenant, than to denote any particular favor belonging to this island. And therefore, it is laid down that, by having issue, the husband shall be entitled to do homage to the Lord for the wife's lands alone. It is likewise used in Ireland by virtue of an ordinance of King Henry III. It also appears to have obtained in Normandy and was likewise used among the ancient Almains or Germans. And yet it is not generally apprehended to have been a consequence of feudal tenure though I think some substantial feudal reasons may be given for its introduction. For if a woman seized of lands hath issue by her husband and dies, the husband is the natural guardian of the child, and as such is in reason entitled to the profits of the lands in order to maintain it, and therefore the heir apparent of a tenant by the courtesy could not be in ward to the lord of the fee during the life of such tenant. As soon, therefore, as any child was born, the father began to have a permanent interest in the lands. He became one of the pares curtis, and was called tenant by the courtesy initiate. And this estate, being once vested in him by the birth of the child, was not liable to be determined by the subsequent death and coming of age of the infant. There are four requisites necessary to make a tenancy by the courtesy, marriage, sizing of the wife, issue, and death of the wife. 1. The marriage must be canonical and legal. 2. The sizing of the wife must be an actual sizing or possession of the lands, not a bare right to possess, which is a sizing in law, but an actual possession, which is a sizing in deed and therefore a man shall not be tenant by the courtesy of a remainder or reversion. But of some incorporeal hereditaments a man may be tenant by the courtesy, though there have been no actual sizing of the wife, as in case of an advowson, where the church has not become void in the lifetime of the wife, which a man may hold by the courtesy, because it is impossible to have had the actual sizing of it and impotentia excusat legem. If the wife be an idiot, the husband shall not be tenant by the courtesy of her lands, for the king is by prerogative entitled to them, the instant she herself has any title. And since she could never be rightfully seized of these lands, and the husband's title depends entirely upon her sizing, the husband can have no title as tenant by the courtesy. 3. The issue must be born alive. Some have had a notion that it must be heard to cry, but that is a mistake. Crying, indeed, is the strongest evidence of its being born alive, but it is not the only evidence. The issue also must be born during the life of the mother, for if the mother dies in labor and the caesarean operation is performed, the husband, in this case, shall not be tenant by the courtesy because at the instant of the mother's death, he was clearly not entitled as having had no issue born, but the land descended to the child while he was yet in his mother's womb, and the estate, being once so vested, shall not afterwards be taken from him. In Gabalkine lands, a husband may be tenant by the courtesy without having any issue. But in general, there must be issue born, 
and such issue must also be capable of inheriting the mother's estate. Therefore, if a woman be tenant in tail male, and hath only a daughter born, the husband is not thereby entitled to be tenant by the courtesy, because such issue female can never inherit the estate in tail male. And this seems to be the true reason why the husband cannot be tenant by the courtesy of any lands of which the wife was not actually seized, because in order to entitle himself to such estate, he must have begotten issue that be heir to the wife. But no one, by the standing rule of law, can be heir to the ancestor of any land whereof the ancestor was not actually sized, and therefore, as the husband hath never begotten any issue that can be heir to those lands, he shall not be tenant of them by the courtesy. And hence we may observe with how much nicety and consideration the old rules of law were framed, and how closely they are connected and interwoven together, supporting, illustrating, and demonstrating one another. The time when the issue was born is immaterial, providing it were during the coverture. For, whether it was born before or after the wife's sizing of the lands, whether it be living or dead at the time of the sizing, or at the time of the wife's decease, the husband shall be tenant by the courtesy. The husband, by the birth of the child, becomes, as was before observed, tenant by the courtesy initiate, and may do many acts to charge the lands. But his estate is not consummate until the death of the wife which is the fourth and last requisite to make a complete tenant by the courtesy. End of chapter 8, part 1.